Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, after a long break away from the office, I am back in the Click offices in Waltham, Massachusetts, and I'm happy to be with Brett King. Brett King is the host of the world's number one ranked podcast and radio show on fintech called Breaking Banks. He's also the CEO of the world's first mobile downloadable bank account, Movin, and advised the Obama administration on fintech policy. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Brett. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm here in New York City at my apartment, um, so um, a little bit uh, a little bit noisy uh, in New York. We sit, sit next to the FDR, but um, great to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Something about the city that never sleeps. Exactly. Yeah. So, Brett, I wanted to start off by asking about the thing that I think you've become most influential on, which is the transition of banks from old traditional brick and mortars through a fourth generation of banking that is much more digital. And I've heard you say that they, the model for banking has kind of ceased to be a bank, and those models can be seen in other kinds of avenues of our lives, like Jack Ma's description of Alibaba. Uh, and that kind of starts to turn the definition of what a bank is on its head. So I wonder... What, what do you think a bank looks like? What is a bank and what's a good model for a bank? And then what are the goals and, and good things for, um, for people to be following in terms of what's, what's coming next in that, in that model? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, if you look around the world, then, you know, we have some early indicators that it is definitely changing. Um, you know, the let's just look at Nubank, um, which some of your listeners may have heard of. It's a company that Warren Buffett invested heavily in. Um, it's um, a Brazilian challenger bank um, that uh, raised $750 million in pre-IPO funding in the middle of 2021 and then listed or IPO'd at the end of the year um, in December, um, raising about well, their market cap, uh, you know, post um, IPO is about fifty billion dollars, which makes Nubank a challenger bank, a digital pure play that's effectively like seven years old. Makes them now the largest bank in Latin America. Um, these digital competitors that are coming into these markets are unconventional in respect to the way they think about banking. They don't have branches. Um, you know, they deal with customer support very differently from the incumbents, and they are starting to innovate in respect to, to products and services. But you've also got bank alternates coming up. And so you mentioned Ant um, and, and Jack Ma. Well, you know, Ant Group is still, despite the uh, um, the efforts of, of People's Bank, Bank and the Central Bank in China to dampen their influence in the Chinese market, is still the largest fintech in the world today. Um, and so if you look at um, their, their primary mechanism for being a bank, it's not actually a traditional bank, it's, it's a mobile wallet. Um, and the same for Tencent WeChat Pay or M-Pesa in Kenya, as an example. Um, mm. And these operate as value stores. They enable you to 
um, send money to and from other people and increasingly through partnerships they give you access to credit and insurance and a whole other range of services so these mobile wallets um, certainly operationally are starting to compete day to day for basic banking services but they're they're in you know you, you couldn't argue that they're a bank in traditional terms yeah, I, I heard a speech that you gave where you said, at the end of the day, a bank needs to do three things. It needs to store money, it needs to move money, and it needs to issue credit. And then you went on further to say that the banks of the next generation need to move on from being omnichannel to being ubiquitous. And all of that sounds like digital wallets following you around, and you ask provocative questions like, is Uber a bank? Right. Well, um, you know, Uber, of course, uh, very famously did get into um, the banking and payment services space with Uber Money. They've since pulled back a little bit on that as, uh, you know, they they seek to uh, push towards break even. But, um, you know, there is a very real... um, situation occurring here where we're starting to see more and more companies infringe on the banking space with their platforms that require integration of financial services. So the super apps, um, you know, WeChat being the first of those, but, you know, let's take Gojek in Indonesia as an example. So Gojek, very similar organization to Uber, um, and they have recently acquired a bank in the Indonesian market to give themselves a more robust sort of financial services offering embedded within their super app platform. So whether it's a driver who needs to get a car lease or a bank account to be paid for driving and delivering, um, you know, uh, food or whatever it is out of the app, Um, you know, increasingly these platforms, because they're sort of interconnected into daily life, require some elements of banking and payments experience built into that. So rather than partnering with a traditional player in the market, increasingly, you know, it becomes something that these super apps and other players are saying, well, you know, what, what would we have to do to be able to provide these financial services links, you know, as part of our offering for customers, is that is that something that a partnership can be, you know, that that we require a partnership for, or could we replicate a lot of what the banks are doing ourselves? And, and increasingly, we're sort of seeing that hybridization, um, where now you can do, you can, you know, as a driver, you can bank with Uber. You can, you know, you've got the Uber debit card as a driver that you can, um, mm-hmm. you know, use. You can get paid uh, multiple times a day instead of you know just once a week or or whatever so much more sort of real time focused and built into the the lives and um work of of uh, you know the people that you partner with and this will be no surprise to you at all since the name of the podcast is data brilliant but a lot of the convergence with digital also starts to infringe upon analytics data understanding that uh, the intimacy of the behavior of that user on the other end and i think that you are envisioning a bank that in some respects you can say hey siri can i afford dinner tonight and uh, having the data analytics in the omnichannel ubiquitous experience to actually answer questions like that so i wonder if you could tell us about your company moving and what you're doing to kind of move into that space that starts to blend data analytics and this ubiquitous banking experience 
So move in for those that aren't familiar with us. We were the first mobile challenger bank in the world. We launched an app in 2011 um, in beta uh, that uh, was sort of a rethink of the basic bank account. And today we provide banking as a service for fintechs and banks around the world where we've created this um, new sort of smart bank account layer on top through mobile um, that enables you to do your banking. But the core to that is a very different view of the way people use money. And and so we call it financial wellness. Um, you could call it a smart bank account. But essentially... You know, we've we've created a mobile banking app that coaches you as you use your money, as you make payments day to day, helps you save money um, over time, and makes you aware of where there are opportunities for you to save. Um, you know, one of the things that occurs to me as we're having these conversations is a lot of the people that are listening to this podcast are people that are trying to drive analytics and digital experience within the four walls of the organization, or perhaps entrepreneurs that are trying to do something different. And you've done some thinking and speaking about concepts around first principle thinking and design by analogy. I wonder if you could talk our, our listeners through first principle thinking and design by analogy to help them understand how to think through a different kind of experience in a digital world it was it sort of came out of research i did for bank four i was trying to you know um figure out a way to describe the disruption of the mobile wallets in china and you know the other things that were happening the fintechs that were emerging and help the the incumbent you know, industry understand the level of change and the level of disruption. So I looked at historically the the most impactful innovations or inventions throughout history. And when you look at these massive sort of inflection points where you have over the space of ten years, you know, a, a, a significant change in a in a a certain industry. Often it's around um, technology, but the most impactful innovations were those that changed the rules. So, a, you know, a good example of this is moving from the horse and buggy to automobiles. Um, while it's analogous, um, you know, the, the, you know, we talk, use things like horsepower to describe engines in an internal combustion engine, for example. But really, it required a wholesale change in terms of thinking about personal transportation. So the, the uh, creation of the automobile led to this first principles rethink of what transportation should be and resulted in massive change. So we ch- had to change city design. We had to provide um, you know, uh, gas stations to, to get access to the gasoline for the cars. We had road laws that we needed to put in place. You know, we need to um, have uh, you know, roads surfaced with, with, with bitumen and asphalt rather than having dirt roads. You know, all of these things fl- um, flowed from uh, this redesign or rethink of transportation from moving from the horse to the automobile. Um, so these are examples of first principles engineering. What we tend to do in banking is very iterative. So we take a bank product or service that was in the branch and we add a mobile channel, channel on, into the interactions. But 
we're not fundamentally changing the design of the products or the you know the policy or the application process or those things at the back end mobile wallets are starting to do that though so mobile wallets are starting to um repackage credit access in a different way you know than what we've thought about change the emphasis um, from savings around a savings account to now savings behavior um, and you know we see obviously a lot of competition coming into things like payments and and um, you know other areas sort of the mechanics of, of banking day to day so first principles engineering is really where you inject this systemic thinking you start from the ground up and say if we were to rebuild the banking industry today from scratch without the systems that we have in place, what would it look like, you know, given the technology we have available? And the reality is that in, in a lot of instances, you wouldn't require a bank. You would just require the utility of banking to be available. And so that's the, that's the big threat that we're seeing emerge in the financial services space is banks who are trying to incorporate tech into their experience and iterate and still have like a credit card that you can now have available on your, your uh, in your mobile app or you can apply for a credit card in the mobile app instead of say contextual credit where you walk into a grocery store and you get a message from your app that says hey it doesn't look like you've got enough cash to complete your grocery shopping today here's here's access to some credit that would will help you finish your grocery shopping today instead of selling you on a credit card it's now just a it's contextual access to credit that, that's the sort of first principles thinking we're talking about Terrific. So let's let's deviate a little bit here from banking specifically to some more generalized changes that you're seeing in the industry. I think you've highlighted really four things that are going to disrupt our how we understand the world principally: um, AI, embedded technology, health tech, and smart infrastructure. And I wonder if we could double click a little bit on the AI part of that. You've identified some generations and stages of the AI. I wonder if you could talk us through those and where you see that's headed with respect to some of the different digital experiences that we've just talked about. Well, so when we, when we define artificial intelligence, um, practitioners generally talk about three phases of AI. So you ha have the early stage, which is where we're at now, machine learning, deep learning capability. So this is teaching computers um, through uh, backward propagation and these various technologies in data science that allow computers to learn over time. This is, um, this is a real advancement that we've only had the, the last 20 years where we can teach computers instead of programming them. So this is a big shift from the early days well we thought about AI more as sort of replicating an expert we used to call them expert systems actually where you try to encode human behavior or how you know human strategies to different problems but it turns out that machine learning is actually far more effective at teaching behavior and helping AIs learn how to do things that humans do than than sort of coding it so that that's the big shift machine learning that leads us when we can sort of aggregate all of the various components where we teach um, computers pattern recognition so things like um, being able to recognize an object be able to understand human speech you know when we can sort of aggregate all of those uh, individual learnings together then we should be able to build an approximation of human 
human interaction through computers. So we call this artificial general intelligence. This is the second phase of AI. So AGI is where a computer could do a pretty convincing job of pretending to be a human um, and or you know could replace a human fully in respect to uh, to interactions. Then um, you know once you've got that sort of core cognition where you have a human equivalent in AI form, the next phase of AI is where we where that intelligence exceeds human intelligence. So super intelligent or hyper intelligent AI. And though we should move through those three phases over the next 20 to 30 years. So when you have AI that can um, you know disrupt the human labor force that's that's one uh, impact that will be fe- that will be felt you know across the planet then the second level of that is you know how do we deal with ais that are actually smarter than us and you know how how does that impact uh, human development and what does it mean for human ai interaction so these are some of the things we sort of talk about in terms of the broader ai development space yeah and i think that one of the topics that we talk about with some regularity here is the idea of an augmented intelligence where that AI is refactoring its role with respect to human action. So it's there's a human role there somehow that with that AI and and I think that um, you know we're trying to figure out what does that look like? Does the does the role of the human and, and the AI shift where the AI can start to take on more of that work that we don't want to do? Or what's the role of the human as the AIs start to become super intelligent, smarter than we are? Well, the, the most obvious implication initially is just changing our work patterns. Um, so if you think about supply and demand economics, um, you know, like this is, you know, Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, 1776 stuff. But the, the, the you know, the economic principle over the last 200 plus years has been that when you have an economy with producers or manufacturers in that economy, as a product or a service um, faces more demand, to increase supply into the market, you have to inject labor into the market. And so this is why supply and demand economics has always been talked about as, as a critical way to think about the economy. Because as demand increases, it increases the need to supply, and that increases the jobs you can offer the economy. But that AI changes that basic um, interaction between the human workforce and the economy because you can now increase supply as a you know by increasing processing cycles and throwing more AI and you know automation at the problem rather than throwing humans at the problem. So in the in the immediate impact of AI is going to be that we we don't have to work as much. Um, and that changes the way we think about work in society. Then you've got the whole super intelligent AI. Um, you know, do we enhance human intelligence to be able to compete with AIs? Do we have to encode, um, you know, uh, certain ethics in the development of AI so that they don't represent a, a threat existentially to humanity? You know, um, Asimov's three laws of robotics type type of stuff. You know, all of those implications we're also going to have to think about in the latter part of this century as AI becomes more and more capable. It's really fascinating. I've never heard anyone speak about uh, the fundamentals of supply and demand. The whole concept is kind of outdated and built for manufacturing when uh, there's no physical product being created in many of these particular endeavors in tech. 
Well, yeah, I think that's key, right? Is is think about like the Gigafactory with Tesla. You know, um, Tesla's really changed the way we think about manufacturing. They've massively simplified the production of motor vehicles. But if you look at the, you know, certainly Tesla's a great employer, but if you look at the number of people required in a Tesla factory to produce a Tesla motor vehicle compared with traditionally the way we've thought about um, automobile manufacturing, it's very, very different. And so that's, a, again, another good analogy of first principles engineering, which Elon Musk is a, a big fan of um, in in terms of its ability to disrupt an industry or disrupt the way we think about production. So if you think about these two principles together, there are AIs trying to understand the world around us and trying to make uh, sense of the world. And there is a digital experience that we're looking to affect a change in. Uh, Click often talks about this circle as being what we call active intelligence, the idea of finding out something from an analytical perspective, gathering data to you, figuring out the implications via analytics, and then deploying something in real-time decision-making. And uh, what are you seeing in terms of companies that are doing this well, uh, trying to go digital first with this idea of explicitly getting data quickly, analyzing quickly, and digitizing for decision-making? Wow. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I don't. I haven't got that question before, which I, it surprises me. But, um, you know, I think... Um, one area, rather than talking about a specific company, but I do think, um, you know, as an example, you know, I can give a, an example from financial services. Under Ant, there, there is a service called Yui Bao, which sits in the, uh, the Alipay wallet. And Yui Bao is just a one-click savings tool. Um, and and they, they were able to discern through data access, um, they were able to see that what they what they thought was going to happen didn't happen and that was that when mobile wallets became popular the industry basically thought that people would use a mobile wallet for certain purchases um, but they would always maintain their debit card or the bank account as their primary payment mechanism and as a result at the end of the month um, you know the wallet operators thought they would see cash flow going back out of the wallet to the primary bank account and them only topping up the wallet when and where they needed to for, for specific purchases. Actually what happened was very different. People started to use mobile wallets more and more and so they had just these greater revolving balances sitting in the mobile wallets. So Alipay worked out, hey, this is an opportunity here. People have got this money sitting in their wallet that's sort of not doing anything, not earning any interest. You know, why don't we offer them the opportunity to save um, you know, save that money. And so they called this Yui Bao, which it literally translates as hidden treasure. So you've got this hidden treasure sitting in your wallet. Why don't you earn some interest on it? So rather than this being pushing a savings account within the wallet, it was actually creating a savings behavior. So just a messaging that, hey, you've got mm-hmm. excess cash sitting in your wallet. Why don't you earn some interest on that? It turns out that just that simple mechanism within the mobile wallet was massively successful. So UEBAO became the single greatest deposit pool of funds for the purpose of saving money of any financial institution anywhere in the world, over $300 billion of, of savings at one point. So that's, a, that's an example in the financial services space. 
It's really fascinating. A lot of times in analytics, we talk glibly about, you know, we're moving from descriptive analytics to predictive analytics to prescriptive analytics. And what you're describing is actually that life will start to embody these things, that our healthcare will move along those spectrums, that our banking will move along those spectrums, so that we should expect as consumers, each of our different providers of healthcare, of banking services, of whatever, to anticipate the needs much in the same way that Amazon knows what we want to buy uh, with, with almost every part of our life. And I think, um, you know, it, as you said before, it's that shift from product to experiences. So that's where the opportunity is. What does the data set show us in terms of behavior or an opportunity where currently there's a lot of friction in that experience? Because that's what technology generally does. It streamlines things, it makes it more efficient, easier, you know, improves the customer experience. In, in doing so, where are those experiential opportunities, those moment in time, you know, uh, what's the trigger behaviorally, geolocation-based, psychologically? You know, what's the trigger for an event where I can solve that problem for you? Um, and whether that is in financial services with access to credit or where it's, you know, in healthcare, where it's regarding, you know, um, healthy decisions you're making, whatever that is, there, technology is allowing us different experiential opportunities now um, that we just couldn't have delivered in the old world without that technology. So this requires sort of us to think about it in platform terms or ecosystem terms that banking is now, not just banks, but it's banks, technology companies that own the tech layer, fintech specialist companies, AI companies that are sort of integrated into this ecosystem to provide these experiences in real time. Great. So you are usually on the other side of this microphone. Uh, you have a, a podcast, a very successful podcast, Breaking Banks, which has been running for eight years, over 400 episodes. I wonder if any guests jump out to you as people that have really affected your thinking about the future, people can mm -hmm. go back and listen to. Well, we're very, you know, we've had some amazing guests on the show. Um, you know, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, uh, Boris Johnson before he was uh, prime minister when he was the mayor of London. Um, and, and uh, you know, they, they were certainly entertaining. Um, uh, f for me, um, I think one of the things that really has stood out uh, for breaking banks is that we've sort of documented the emergence of the fintech industry. When we started the podcast, it was in 2013. Um, so we're coming up on nine years, actually, um, in May. And, and that was still very much in the early days of fintech. Uh, you know, a lot of fintech companies that are majors now weren't, didn't even exist. Like Nubank was founded at the end of uh, 2013, early 2014 as an example. Now the largest bank in the Brazilian market, as, as I think I mentioned earlier. Um, uh, so, um, you know, documenting the evolution of fintech historically, I think, is important. Yeah, you know, there's some things off the top of my head, but it's been a wild ride. <laughs> I bet that's uh, quite a list. So in addition to being a podcaster, you're also a very uh, successful author. Um, your latest book, which just came out a few months ago, is called The Rise of Techno-Socialism, How Inequality, AI, and Climate Will Usher in a New World. 
What's techno-socialism? I mean, so if effectively what we've been talking about here is all the good stuff that will change our world, but it's got societal impacts and government impacts that I think you're trying to highlight in these groups. So what's your, what's your thesis of this book, and why did you write it? The pandemic really identified some key problems philosophically for humanity. They would have come to the surface regardless of of the pandemic or not but it it accentuated uh, those issues Uh, primarily you know economic inequality um where the gap between the rich and the poor has been increasing over decades of you know over 40 years these are all elements that have led to the problem of inequality where in the u.s you know the the richest 0.1 percent of of the population owns more wealth than the bottom 90 percent um you know and, and the trillionaires uh, for the first time in, in 2020 amassed 10 trillion dollars of wealth for the first time you know th- that is a problem that in in hi- historical terms is a massive issue because this level of inequality typically results in revolution um, so we, we have to figure that out. Then on top of that, you've got the changes that artificial intelligence is going to make and then the impact of climate on, on our society. So AI, as I said before, is radically going to change the way we think about human employment. It's going to need us to come up with ways that people can live that aren't dependent on their job, um, putting food on the table or a roof over their heads, so things like universal basic income. Um, and, you know, we've seen in the debate about that um, being tr- tremendously contentious. Um, and then eventually, you know, um, you know climate um, by 2050 is going to represent probably somewhere between 40 to 60 percent of global GDP in terms of mitigation. So how do you get the world to agree on that type of level of commitment to spend around you know, uh, climate mitigation? You put all this together um, and there are multiple paths humanity can choose in terms of how we tackle these crises that are coming up philo- philosophically. Techno-socialism as a term is really talking about the, uh, the, the view that we need to change the collectivism, that we need to become much more collectively oriented as a species, and that we should be using technology to, de- to deliver on the core basic needs um, that humans face a- a- as an economic priority before we think about other elements of economic growth. And, and in doing so, you know, um, for like say healthcare in the United States, as an example, we could reduce the cost of the total system uh, of healthcare in the U.S. by seventy percent, seven zero, um, from what it is today, um, and making universal healthcare easily affordable um, to the entire population at a fraction of the cost of the system today. As as an example. It really is a fascinating book and very well written, very well put together, and appreciated. Yeah, it's uh, it is a uh, it's exactly the journey that you just described, right? The the how does one understand what is happening with respect to the markets, with respect to people and jobs disconnected from some physical plant, and what has to become the way we change uh, in order to you know f- put food on the table, as you say. Exactly, and and this enables us to really rethink our purpose in life in many ways because. Now, in, in this future that we're talking about, um, 
you would be able to choose to do something that you feel is really going to make a difference in the world without having to worry about if that job is going to put food on the table and, mm-hmm. and provide an education for your children. And that is philosophically a tremendous um, situation for humanity. We call it in the book Optimal Humanity where humanity as a species can work on things that really improve at the chances of our species longer term surviving rather than just emphasizing economic benefits to a very small percentage of the population. And a pretty significant shift from uh, the world of Adam Smith. Yes. It's about time, though. Hmm. You know, he's had a good run. <laughs> he's had a good <laughs> run. 250 years, you know. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, Brett, how can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Thanks, Joe. Well, you can go to brettking.com. That's Brett with double T, um, king, like king and queen, and uh, brettking.com. Or you can check me out on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook. Just do a search on Brett King Author. Um, Generally, it will get you there. Um, If you want to find out more about the new book, you could go to www.riseoftechnosocialism.com or just technosocialism.com or just search for it on, um, you know, wherever good books are sold. Well, Brett, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for being with us. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for the discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Brett King is the host of the world's number one ranked podcast and radio show on fintech called Breaking Banks. He's also the CEO of the world's first mobile downloadable bank account, Movin, and advised the Obama administration on fintech policy. Thank you, Brett King for helping us to see and help shape the future with first principle thinking, a digital first mindset, and an appreciation of the future of disruption centered around AI that we can shape for our companies and our world. Think about the importance of having and acting on good data in your life and in your organization to discover how you can solve your most complex data challenges with a real-time active intelligence analytics data pipeline that generates better insights and more value from your data, visit click.com. That's Q-L-I-K dot com.